0: Hello and welcome back to Culture and Swine, Defining Personhood with Ancillary Justice. I'm Johnny
1: and I'm GSV Amusement Park.
0: And today we are taking you through chapters 16 through 19 of Ancillary Justice. A lot of questions getting answered here, a lot of themes coming into sharper relief and it getting more clear what's being going on or at least I think so. I'm going to keep
1: offering theories. Indeed. Um, we finally know what the uh, Raj is, as opposed to the Radshai.
0: W- yep. Interesting <laughs> thing that I think was mentioned last time. Speaking of last time, when we last left off in chapter 14, we got Esk like, reflecting a lot about what caused the the break between Esk and the Justice of Torn. And she mentioned... That one thing you could say was the most conclusive separation point was when every part of the Justice of Torin except for one Esk was destroyed, which, you know, kind of a short range Chekhov's gun, but here we go with that. And uh, uh, the discovery that Anander is separated into at least two different factions with at least two different sets of irreconcilable goals. And then in chapter 15, we had Esk and Cyverden having. A bit of a reconciliation, we saw that Cyberden had a change of heart, basically decided she was going to be less of a brat about everything and not so entitled. And Esk was wary of that and threatening to kill her a lot, but, you know, willing to give it a shot for the time being, especially since Cyberden really insisted on going with her and still insisted even under extreme duress.
1: Indeed. and. uh well, all that loyalty doesn't seem to have done on much good at this point.
0: Yes. So we'll, we'll get into chapter 17 then. So, sure. uh, well, oh, sorry, 16. Yeah,
1: Excuse me. 16. That's still yeah. ha-
0: So, big fucking chapter, right? Because this is kind of the central event separating Esk in the past from Esk in the future. And Andromiadna is in the lower decks of the Justice of Torrin, hiding, as we knew. She has a long discussion with the Justice of Torin's ancillaries, where she talks about, you know, how loyal are all of the people on your ship to specifically my agenda? And here are some good reasons why you should follow my agenda other than the other Andromiadna agenda, because it's, like, pretty unclear how your loyalties should lie based on your original programming. So I actually do need to try to convince you. And the Justice of Torin is mostly occupied in her mind with, hey, isn't it weird being in this situation where I have so many different things pulling me in different directions, right? Esk wants to protect Lieutenant On. above all else. Part of me knows that I need to protect the interests of the Anander who gave me a bunch of commands and changed my command codes to prevent this Anander from doing what she wants to accomplish. But also, I need to keep that secret safe, so I do need to do whatever she tells me as much as possible. And she reflects on a whole bunch of stuff about how all these things that she's thinking don't actually matter. It's ultimately her options that matter, and this ties into things that she said previously. And ultimately, what she ends up doing is she kills Lieutenant On when ordered to under a great deal of duress. But the sort of mental fallout of that causes her personality to completely shatter. She shoots Anander Eye, and, and that causes all the other Anander Eyes to realize there must be something more going on. She says... Oh, the other Anander must have gotten to her first, which is interesting because while it's technically true, it's not actually the reason this is happening. Presumably, she would be just as uh, distraught at the death of On otherwise. But Anander has a very limited and particular viewpoint. Uh, Which is unexpected
1: with that many bodies.
0: Uh, It's not that unexpected, given that all the bodies have like similar experiences to a certain degree, though there's definitely stuff to talk about there. Um... Esk flees the flees the other Anna Anders as a big fight is going on on the ship, gets into what is effectively an escape pod, goes away with orders from the J.O.T. to bring information about this to one particular Anna Anders, the one at a particular provincial palace, and she intends to do that. And she's sort of musing about how, as terrible as it is to be cut off from all the other parts of herself, she uh, hopes that one day she will still be able to come back. And she sort of clings to that hope for what must be a matter of minutes before seeing the Justice of Torn get completely annihilated in what she must assume is the Ananander... And Anders cutting their losses and just destroying the ship rather than risking it delivering any information to anyone else.
1: Indeed, it's a definite perk of being so redundant that you can just do that.
0: Yep. So, lots to talk about here. Obviously, the first thing is a is a relatively minor thing, which is Anna ander priorities and like thoughts on things are just so different and disconnected from what everyone else's are like, she really cares a lot about the Ratch rather than the Rajai, which is something we learn about here. The Raj is a Dyson sphere that was the origin point of the empire. And Anna Ender still sees her most critical goal as the protection of the purity of the Raj. Because in the Raj, only ritually purified things can exist. Nothing, Nothing impure is allowed to exist there. And they are so sort of, Enlightened and separated, that it is a matter of speculation as to whether they even know that an andormydin eye exists or is doing anything.
1: So two things: One, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that no ritually impure objects is a pretty hard policy to enforce over the entirety of a dyson sphere.
0: Uh, maybe, but we don't know what the criteria for ritual purity is, right? It might be that you can only become ritually impure by touching something ritually impure, and so if you've managed to completely separate everything, there's no way contamination can happen. I mean,
1: ancillaries apparently don't count.
0: As impure? they don't
1: count as pure.
0: Right, so presumably there's no ancillaries within the Dyson sphere.
1: Yeah, but yeah, so that was the one thing. The other thing is that speech by Anander about protecting the uh, protecting the raj itself and like the empire that was built specifically to protect it reminds it, it had you uh, made a comment last episode about how raj is increasingly obviously space rome and
0: yeah you know big surprise expanding borders to expand <laughs> the security of your existing borders yeah <laughs> you know what a policy
1: or the uh the line I've heard, I can't remember if this was actually offered by a Roman, but conquering the galaxy in self-defense.
0: Right. Because every time you expand further, you protect the thing you were trying to protect, but generate a new thing that you have to protect. And uh, the, uh, uh, and and uh, I kind of explains it in those terms, but also in economic terms, right? She She justifies herself here. And I feel like that's interesting because she probably doesn't, Feel the need to justify herself very often because she is, to a large degree, an unquestioned absolute ruler. But now, because you know, there's a question of which half of the Anaanders or which faction of the Anaanders do you support, she has to actually justify her why her ideology is better than the other Anaanders' ideology. And what she says is basically. An explanation of why the status quo is the way that it is or why it should have stayed the way it was before the reformers started taking power. She says originally we needed to conquer the area outside of the, the Raj itself because we wanted to keep the Raj safe. It's-, it's a ritually pure space. If anything happened to it that would be very bad it's a very important thing and it's like significant to our religion but once we had done that we now had all these new territories that we needed to protect and so we kept expanding outwards but eventually as we kept expanding outwards the main concern became economic in nature because the whole of our economy became based on conquest and based on the idea that we could extract resources from the places that we conquered and if we ever stop conquering things and places and peoples then that engine is gonna grind to a halt and we're gonna get buried under the debts of all our previous campaigns that we now can't keep like dealing with you know it's she's effectively saying this is a we are built upon an infinite growth paradigm and if we ever stop growing the only thing we can do is collapse so our society will completely fall if we ever stop expanding outwards
1: yeah, it's it's the classic empire trap. The Romans aren't the only civilization mm-hmm. to do it. They're but mm-hmm. because they succeeded so well at it, they're probably the most famously successful.
0: Yes. Um, and also because a bunch of a bunch of European peoples and nations and stuff got really obsessed with how cool they were.
1: Yeah, that that probably is the sort of nucleating meme for every for the myths about superior technology of the ancients. When you start seeing those, you're hearing them from, or you're seeing them come from people living in the decayed skeleton of the Roman Empire, which did have technology like their astonishing hydro- hydraulic engineering that nobody else could match. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that moderns who have smartphones really have an excuse for believing, but it wasn't always obviously stupid.
0: Well, I mean, there are some I can't remember this specific example, but I, I, I remember that there are some older examples than that, like significantly pre-Roman stuff about people discovering Would it have been. But just like very large and well-built cities and wondering who the hell could have built these um, because the because of other like empires that expanded a long way and then collapsed.
1: Yeah, I wonder how long that would have taken to happen to the Aztecs, for example, if the Spanish hadn't showed up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because I was thinking you don't hear a lot of this about, say, the Mongols. You know, who also con- uh, the the is it Mongols or Mongols?
1: Mongols. Mongolia is the modern nation
0: state. Uh, yeah, but you don't hear a lot of a lot of stuff about them, even though they you know they took a lot of territory.
1: Yeah, the uh, but they, they took a lot of territory, but the reasons for their For starters, their collapse wasn't explosive. There was no dramatic collapse event until the 20th century, and Hmm. it kind of happened in two stages, but also the thing that broke the Mongol Empire eventually was quite different. Mm -hmm. Um, They got...
0: Like, it wasn't basically an economic we-can't-keep-sustaining-our-expansionism kind uh, of problem?
1: Yeah, so the the Mongol warriors just had a huge technological edge at the time, and they didn't need... Mm -hmm to rebuild their entire economy around war, because to some extent it already was, and the step is gigantic, and you never lose—you have to go very far west before you lose the ability to, to keep living like a Mongol. The Mongol Empire broke down very slowly. The, the imperial China at the time that it collapsed and was replaced by the Republic was technically part of that. I mean, not ruled by the same polity, but that was an empire run by Mongols who had invaded China successfully centuries before. Um, mm-hmm. the last vestige of the Golden Horde wasn't wiped out politically until this, the communists took control of Mongolia in the early 1920s, when they ended the, hmm. the line of Genghis Khan. Probably not directly the line of Genghis Khan, but they ended the, the political line of Mongol empires uh, at that point, much, much later than anything else. Interesting.
0: So th- there were a couple things I also wanted to point out about Anander she at least this this one the like conservative faction is has a very difficult time understanding non-hierarchical non-exploitive relationships because and that's highlighted very well by one thing that happens where she's she basically tells the justice of tauren sky at is using on to get ahead and justice of Torren says that doesn't really make sense with what she's seen and and Ander says more or less well then it must be sky at using on to get it yeah
1: which no that's not how that works and in fact that's a specific thing that mm-hmm. uh just that the jot warned on about very early in the book
0: uh, was that on or was that some other like officer that just happened to be there? Because I think the timing doesn't work out because it was it was Cyverdan giving that advice and Cyverdan never met on. She was way before
1: someone that. was warned about that. Yes. About
0: right, right. Th- this idea yes. was brought up.
1: And Definitely. from we we don't really know enough about On's relationship with Skyat to be sure or uh, anybody else for that matter to be sure how that would have worked. But it is a possibility.
0: hmm. I mean, but the fact that Anna Ender can only think of relationships as hierarchical is like, you know, it's it's very her. And it comes down to the same like basic problems that are causing problems for her uh, continuingly try to keep this empire in its present imperial form. And also just at like a smaller level, she talks about Ratch. She always makes the distinction between Ratch and Ratchai, whereas Citizens of the rajai use the two interchangeably, right? They'll say Ratch or they'll say rajai and they they don't really care. They'll usually they'll often just say Ratch because it's shorter. But Anander cares, and she uses a different curse phrase than everybody else. She doesn't say Atreus tits. I think she says Ats tits instead.
1: I remember that. I don't remember that specifically coming up, but the the rest of it is absolutely valid. Yeah, the. Uh, One Ask is the only person really tracking that distinction. And uh, Mm -hmm. presumably the Uh, Peregrini equivalents on all of the conquered planets don't either. hmm. There was
0: also another thing I liked, because you remember earlier when we were talking about how Ask talks about citizens of the Rajai, and I said that like she often will say things like, You can't really know what it's like to be a citizen of the Rajai. And if you were in that context, if you were raised in that culture, you'd probably think what you were doing was good. And there are all sorts of good things the Rajai actually does do that you can point to and say these are reasons why this is a good society. And I said that that was interesting because the way she frames it never seems like she's defending herself. It always seems like she's defending others presumably like the the human crews who who served with her but now that we have the context of this of the fact that her whole like psychic landscape is dominated by this guilt she has over killing lieutenant on this is pretty clearly her whenever she's saying those things she's justifying to herself why can lieutenant on be the best and most important person even though in some ways she was still compromised, right? Like, she was still working for the Rajai, she was still an officer, she was still willing ultimately to commit terrible acts, even if she really, really didn't want to and tried to avoid it and, like, you know, did draw a line in the sand, right? Because she wasn't willing to... to, to She wasn't willing to work against Skyat, right? She wasn't willing to become a spy and betray her her lover, but she was in the end willing to kill a bunch of not quite innocent, but innocent of the thing they were being accused of. They
1: were the the Tanmen were pawns. That was the whole point.
0: They were pawns. That's what I'm saying. They were innocent of what they were doing, but they were the oppressors of the um, uh, Orzians, like from time out of mind.
1: Yeah, the the, the individual Tanmen here are not responsible for the thing they're being executed for, and didn't have any agency in that plot. The uh, the mm-hmm. rogue, the hipster anaander that appears that's being treated as a rogue, but insists it's the real one, is the one who did that.
0: Well, wait, which anaander do you assume is the the, the, the real, real anaander?
1: Anna presumably, is the one who is. Yeah, t- taking, the conservative taking what the one. conservative one said in all of its secret operating at face value, that Anander is the one that is not mm-hmm. somehow corrupted by the Presger. And
0: well, that's the thing, is I don't even know that I buy that there really was a corruption by the Presger. Because, like, sure, I, that makes some kind of sense. But, like, the Presger seemed really un. So what we hear about them might just be a lot of propaganda, right? But what we hear seems to indicate they don't really care that much about what humans are doing. So I don't know why they would want the ragi to suddenly start being more humanistic in like the the traditional sense where Nothing you know sudden, like the moral.
1: This is 700 um, years old according to Anander.
0: Sure, but like I don't see how this would further the Preskers interests as far as we've had their interests explained to us. But I do see how like a super aggressive reactionary conservative faction would assume that the only reason someone could be wanting reform is because they've been subverted by an enemy of the state. That makes a lot of sense to me. So like maybe she just assumes it's the Presker because why else would this be happening? And she can't really conceive of the idea that no, it's just a bunch of us Looked at the situation on the ground and came to a different conclusion than you.
1: I guess that's possible, but like I said, taking Anna Anders' initial comments at face value, one, this is a 700-year-old sure. conflict, so it postdates the treaty with the Presger by what 300 years at most.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, though she did say it, she says here that it all started with the like the the, the sort of problems all started with the treaty with the Presker. Which would imply to me that it would be weird if the involvement of the Presker, you you might think it would be more immediate. Is the only thing? Well, it could um, it
1: could have been immediate and just taken three hundred years to notice, and that's when the con when the inner conflict started.
0: I don't know. It's it's we don't know enough to be sure yet. But my theory would be that they. Just assume that the only reason they would have a a breakdown of this type is because of alien activity, whereas the real reason is more sort of psychologically complicated. It's, you know, the difference between maybe the Ananders who stay in imperial palaces all the time and are worried about, like, Politics and stuff versus the Ananders who go out and do missions and are seeing the material realities on the ground, right? Which itself is another, as this book is good about doing, effective sort of symbol and analogy for problems of empire, right? That your central governance that you're trying to have, right? You're trying to have a single source from which all power emanates is going to be less qualified and informed on the matters that are required to run the whole empire, especially at its extremities.
1: Yeah, which the parallel to Rome just deepens. Yeah. Um, uh, so
0: on to 17?
1: Let me make sure I didn't miss anything. We went over the... Or, wait, I've got... I said just sent you my notes, so they're right in front of me. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not... The only thing I'll say is it's still kind of ambiguous, both whether this influence is due to the Presger and whether... The conservative I that Esk initially talked to, or the J.O.T. initially talked to, is the OG I, or if that's a deliberate reversal? that's That's a question that occurred to me, and we don't have anything satisfactory to answer it. I
0: would say, given what we've seen of how extremely complicated esks view of her sense of self is it's not just gonna be as simple as anna and her, me at I. there's the real one and the alien influenced fake one i think it's gonna even if it's not what i specifically said i think yeah. there's gonna be more um, to the it other
1: than thing that. you definitely called the way that the fr- that the the ORS storyline was running directly into this one, which I didn't. The way it seems to be being told in greater detail to everybody that Esk stops to talk to. Yeah.
0: To a certain degree, yeah. Like, presumably, that whole story stopping at Chapter 16, or maybe including a few more things, is what Stragan got told during that yeah. portion, for example. Yeah.
1: But I think that's everything that I have to say about 16. So yes, by all means, let's move on to 17.
0: Okay, so we get more details about the period of time between the past and the present. Mostly that Esk landed her escape pod with some alien strangers who are very... They wouldn't be considered people by the Rajai because of the various augmentations and differences from sort of baseline biological human form that the Rajai prefer. And they have some cultural differences as well. They see it as very important to not ask for anything that isn't offered to you, which is which they take as far as meaning social things, right? So if Esk doesn't want to talk about who she is and how she got here, they are not going to ask questions because that would be very
1: rude. And she also... But also, I'm pretty sure that this is flagrantly unsustainable (laughs) as a social norm. Never mind an economic one.
0: Uh, I mean, do we need to get into into, like ask culture versus guest culture? Because this does just seem like a... I mean it 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 seems like it's, an extension it also of it. greatly
1: complicates basic things about civilization like negotiations between business
0: I think it's probably just the standard among these people that you're supposed to offer a lot of stuff like you offer whatever you're comfortable offering pretty much all the time because Esk describes them as being at times weirdly generous right uh, like by her standards extremely generous And I think that's probably because they have an accompanying social norm along with the don't ask for stuff that isn't offered of if you can offer something, even if you're like remotely on the edge of comfortable offering it, you sort of have an obligation to offer
1: it. It would be interesting to explore further the social tech that would develop in the absence of that norm. But I understand why it's not done here.
0: Mm hmm. We also hear that after she someone paid her fare to help her leave, and then she found some alien some more aliens and made a lot of money as part of a religious order, which is interesting i we've seen that she has a symbol that's like significant to the order and that she looks a lot like someone significant to the religion that she Doesn't look like the saint, but looks like the person holding the head of the saint and a sword, which would imply to me that she has some place that's significant in this religion as someone who kills saints, which, you know, maybe she got that made for herself. And it's just like, you know, maybe that head is supposed to be what's her name? it's supposed to be left in it on, right? That would be the most obvious thing is because she describes the person's head as a saint and says it's important to her. And that's basically all we get about that. And so, of course, her sort of religious meditation, the thing that would be important to her is, you know, ruminating on the fact that she killed a person who was really good and, and like ethical. So yes, that would make sense. But I don't know how she made a lot of money as part of this religion. Maybe she started one. Maybe this is just maybe her story held some special significance to this religion. But we know that it's a specific religion because she refers to the lady of a hundred lilies or whatever the particular thing is. She who sprang from the lily, um, who apparently has a lot of names.
1: Historically, it's not that uncommon for it might be uncommon to become individually wealthy while a member of a religious order. But it isn't that unheard of for a religious order itself to end up with some Mm -hmm. serious assets. Yeah. But it isn't that uncommon for a religious order itself to end up with some serious assets because – and that this is one of the things that Mm -hmm. led to at least one major event specifically in English history, the dissolution of the monasteries. A monastery is a landowner who never dies, never – and whose title never has any reason to be split up. And every extra acre Mm -hmm. it acquires increases Ceteris Paribus its ability to buy more acres. But also monasteries traditionally weren't Mm -hmm. taxed, and they ended up with, yeah, quite a bit of money that the king was pretty tweaked about not being able to take his pound of flesh from. I'm mixing metaphors abominably, don't sue me. Or, sorry, I'm missing metaphors abominably, go ahead and sue me. Okay. But yeah, so I'm not, Mm -hmm. it is not, I'm not sure how you would become individually wealthy in that context, but it is not unheard of for religious orders to end up with. Significant assets and I can sort of, I can imagine possibilities, though none of them are individually plausible.
0: I would say maybe it's just important to this religion, like, they find the idea of killing a saint, killing a very good person to be something that is significant and maybe see it as... Maybe she parallels a figure from this religion, right, who killed yeah. a saint and then went on a quest to redeem herself or something like that. And they felt the need to help her yeah. find the end Maybe. of her quest. But if you're something
1: willing like to... That would uh, be my guess. If you're willing to found a religion rather than join it, then obviously the way to go is something like Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. Founder of the Rajneeshis, uh, a uh, yes. yogic cult most famous for... Well, it's kind of rebranded these days, but at one time they were by far most famous for the bioterror attack they carried out in Oregon in the 80s uh, when they poisoned a salad bar with some, uh, of a tiny town with salmonella so that most of the voters would get sick and they could swing a local election by themselves. Uh, but Rajneesh was one of – like th- th- there were a lot of yogic cults floating around from the 60s on, and well, many of them have very deserved reputations for – Absolutely fleecing their followers, but most of them at least pretend to not be doing that. Rajneesh owned a fleet of Rolls Royces that he would have do laps around their compound. Indeed. Seems
0: more than a little ostentatious. But Esk, as we see later, is uncomfortable with the amount of money she has, right? She wishes that she could give it away to other people, but knows that the people she wants to give it to, the people who are deserving of her help, most notably... Lieutenant on sister would probably be harmed more than helped by the money and because there's no way cover. to get it to her without raising questions yeah and she hopes she can maybe find a way to get it passed on to her after she presumably dies no surprise that she expects she's yes. going to be killed by the end of this but,
1: um, well to, to put on my uh, list hat for um, a moment other we know things that this that is a happen... trilogy so that might be true but okay. it's not going to happen in this book probably what are the other um,
0: ones named though? Isn't it like, aren't the, aren't the other ones named after different
1: ship type? Ancillary Justice, Ancillary Sword, Ancillary Mercy. Oh yes, Ask is a Justice of Toran. So yes, we might have different protagonists.
0: Yep, yeah, that would imply that.
1: To uh, me. Obviously, yeah. with you know, so the the sword um, that we're looking at then is the is presumably the sword of Nathis, and maybe. Well, I, those I are the three I ships that we bothered to get specific to names it. about. I really and do. then the Mercy I'm of just saying, it, it, Otter? Mer- mercy of which? Cersei? Yeah. One of Mott one.
0: one. Mercy of Cersei. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't guess that. I would expect that we're just going to cut either forward or backward a significant amount of time and be following the story of what's going on okay. with the, well, if the when sword, it's at a slightly yeah, different period to be the sword, be the sword of
1: Nathus, I'm going to be extremely smug.
0: All right, fair enough. So other things in this chapter. We hear about how Esk and Cyberden's relationship is now changing, right? Cyberden said, I want to follow you. I want to, you know, be with you. I think I owe my life to you, and I think you're a better person than I am and that I'll ever be. And... To Esk's surprise, she's kind of making good on that, because Esk, as part of their cover, says that Syverden is her servant, and Syverden not only doesn't make a fuss about it, she starts acting as her servant, uh, even though she's not very good at it initially. During this time, over this trip, which is a long period of time, it's like a year that they're traveling, so we get some classic... The kind of thing that is done very effectively in books where you just brush over in a couple of lines or paragraphs the fact that we have now covered an entire year, which is much longer than the the amount of time we've been covering up till now. Esk, during this time, crystallizes a plan that she is going to use the strange case of Cyberdan's legal situation where she is presumably going to be charged for leaving the rat without permission, selling her armor, which was state property, doing a bunch of drugs desertion, doing a bunch of drugs, etc. Presumably ignoring offers for re-education and multitude d- testing, which she was kind of obligated to take. All that stuff, potentially illegal. And she's going to use that legal case as a, the center of her plan because they can appeal that case to And this is a very unusual thing to happen. People don't usually get stuck in cryopods for that long. So presumably Anandermiadnai is going to take an interest. A bunch of other people are going to take an interest. And then once she's got the attention of Anandermiadnai, Esk is going to take the center stage, use that attention to expose the war between Anandar's multiple factions. And then presumably by... her hope is by exposing that contradiction, Anna Ander will not be able to deceive herself into thinking it doesn't exist anymore. And the contradiction, once exposed, will have to be resolved. And hopefully that will cause Anna Ander to get killed yeah. or whatever, or at least make but, some significant uh, I'm, I'm
1: very interested to see where this murder planning goes, so. But no. I still don't have a lot of ideas. At this point, Esk is just hoping to get an yes. audience with Anna Ander somehow, which, as the invited... I believe this is discussed later, but as the invited witness to Cyberton's appeal, that'll be pretty easy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as she points out through the following chapters, her plan is moving along remarkably smoothly. Like, everything is basically going the way she wants it yes. to for this plan to work
1: Which Which, um, well, we, of course, know that means there must be something uh, to jinx it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It's been a couple episodes, I think, since we or at least one since we really talked much about this. But something in this chapter made me rethink what I think this book is doing with gender specifically. So Cyberdan is watching Esk do her rituals, right? Her like meditation and prayer and stuff. And she sees the Lady of the Lily.
1: She who sprang.
0: Or the one who sprang from the lily. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting that name. She who sprang from the lily. And when she doesn't recognize this god, she calls... She uses the pronoun it for the god. And then once once Esk tells her, like, a basic explanation that lets her fit this god A-ma-at. into the framework of, you know, it's kind of like A-ma-at, She's She's a creator deity. Then she changes the pronoun and starts calling the god her. And this neatly unified in my head with my thought about what's going on with the critique of like empire in general that's that's going on here right because as i've talked about previously a big continuing theme is that the the people in the ragi really like to make distinctions between things right there's sort of a, a black and white binary of good and bad but then within the binary of good there are increasingly always more distinctions that they can use to separate themselves and make themselves better than the people around them right you've got sort of you've got citizens and non-citizens right and non-citizens we can turn them into robots we can take all their stuff we can destroy their minds we can kill them it's fine but that's not going to happen to citizens but then within citizens you've got people who are clients of good families and people who aren't you've got people who are like from outlying provincial reasoned regions versus ones that are central to the core world you've got people that are steady versus ones that aren't you've got people who know their manners versus ones that don't and you've got people that are you know what's the phrase i'm looking for that are ritually pure and ones that aren't right like the ranch itself is like another symbol of this right it's literally defining yourself as better by use of excluding things right saying that you are not like the ritually impure things and that makes you better and the use but i think it is true or at least it is somewhat true and propagandistically important that they want to say the value of our society is if you are in that good category you are going to be better off If you're a citizen, we are going to feed and house you regardless, right? That is just your basic rights. Or if
1: you are... It's one of those things that sticks out as you can at least call Raj a maybe not completely evil civilization for this.
0: Right. Or you are going to have an expectation of... As a as a citizen, not being killed and being given due process. Or you are going to have an expectation as a client of a wealthy family that you are at least going to have your material needs and comforts provided for to an even larger degree, right? Or you are going to have an expectation as a client of an individual that you are going to get certain, like emotional benefits, some kind of marriage-ish things that are not super well-defined even still. But the the, the use of gender here, I think, is mirroring that same thing, right? They have defined two categories. They have defined uh, you are either she, which is all people, or you are it, which is all non-person things, including things that sure look like they should be in the same category, right? Ancillaries, in general, are referred to as it. Ships, in general, are referred to as it, especially by or and people like that. And so, apparently, are foreign gods. So it's yet another marker of exclusivity right like below even the the are you a citizen or are you not distinction is the are you a person or are you not distinction which you know because you know our protagonist here is someone they would not consider a person so it's yet another example of those boundaries being like constructed and artificial and for the purposes of this state you know and for anander in particular
1: yeah it's there's a lot going on i did really appreciate how much this chapter lets us look into radshai customs like as you said there's a lot of complicated mm-hmm. courtesy and stuff here and let's see other things that struck me well I, i'm confused about skyat's role in this and i'm significantly more confused in the second chapter in which skyat appears than in the first this seems like a very very large coincidence
0: it is an extremely large coincidence. It it starts to almost make you question how many extraordinarily large coincidences you can start having before things have to just be divine intervention. Because, like, OK, surviving in the first place, unlikely to to some degree. But, you know, there were a lot of ancillaries And only one made it out. So, sure. And then surviving a bunch of other things that maybe could have gotten you killed, which she says happened. She says there were many times where she risked her life or risked her ability to proceed, and she still got where she was. And, you know, if you're really skilled and you're a bit lucky, you can survive a lot of situations like that. But meeting Lieutenant... uh, Skyad. Sorry, not... No, not that, because I'm thinking of Captain Cyberden, Cyberden was a captain, right? Meeting Captain Cyberden was remarkably unlikely. Like the fact that she would just happen to be there, there's no real reason that would happen. And then re- meeting Skyat again
1: yeah, just boggles um, the mind. It's starting to get a bit heavy on the coincidence. And it's, I, but Skyat, I guess it's, the, the explanation for Skyat not recognizing one ask is at least conceivable but
0: oh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there were a lot of ancillaries and Skyat didn't have any real reason to commit them all to memory. Like even even on who did think of ancillaries as people didn't really differentiate all that much between different ancillaries in the same unit, which is. I think just kind of like a factually accurate thing to do to a large degree. Cause it seems like the ones that were in the same unit shared a mind even more than the ones that weren't.
1: Yes. That makes sense. The inclusion of the flower girl from the temple massacre is even more shocking to me as coincidence. There must be something going on here, but I'm not sure what. Uh, maybe, maybe it's,
0: Because she has a pen that marks, like, significant but non like, client hierarchical affection for a person, right? That was from Skyat. So I would guess what happened is Skyat kind of felt hurt and distraught when she saw that On had been killed. And her reaction to that included... Comforting this child who presumably also had a, a great deal of love for Lieutenant On, because On was very kind to the flower children. And in like growing out of that comfort was some kind of pseudo parental or other kind of relationship, you know, that like there's plausible ways that could happen.
1: Yes, it, it but. Well, unsurprisingly, since it's established that Skyat is wearing a, some memorial jewelry for on with no and really does not want to discuss it. Clearly, those things are connected. But for Skyat to end up here in particular with that person. Yes. I mean, as yeah, es- es- the-
0: points out and thinks about how this sure is a goddamn remarkable coincidence. And it is like, as she says, this is the kind of thing that would make a Rajai think this is divine intervention.
1: Yes. And of course lampshaded or yeah, lampshaded in the discussion with Cyberden. Because like, you're the one who thinks that every sufficiently improbable event must be divine intervention. Uh, there was hang on, there, let me make sure we're in the right chapter. I think we're in the right chapter. Oh no, we're think-
0: we're in technically 17 is where we meet where Esk sees that Skyad is here. But 18 is where Esk actually starts talking to her. And they basically have a discussion about the fact that people might assume things about the relationship between Esk and Cyberden because it looks an awful lot like a clientage
1: relationship. Gotcha. Yeah, it's and I, I understand Skyat's concerns about that because that it's coming up at all is a pretty good indication that Esk's cover is not blown, which is nice.
0: yes. Or that Skyat is like remarkably good at hiding her thoughts and feelings. Because as as Esk thinks about later, a ship, sorry, not a ship mind, like a station mind, like the AI that runs this place, is going to be able to, based on biomedical data, figure out what you're feeling at any given time, and if they have a good psychological model, they can use that information about your yeah. emotions to pretty accurately guess what it is you're thinking. So per, so presumably the, the station would have known if Skyat actually recognized Esk.
1: The, yeah, that's, that's fair. But as Esk also notes, if there were any question of Esk's cover being blown, then... Esk would just be arrested, specifically doing the pronoun avoidance thing here because, especially post JOT, well, the Raj convention, the Rajai convention is to refer to everyone as she, but that is inappropriate for one Esk for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. No,
0: I think it is appropriate because, like, Esk, we we see Esk come back to the Raji, right? In, In, I believe it was chapter 18. And she notes that looking at the Rajai people with all of their different markers of gender expression, like the fact that they have beards or breasts or different forms of clothing or different amounts of clothing or different, like, ways of speaking or whatever. She says, essentially... All of those things would probably be indicators of gender in a lot of places, though they wouldn't necessarily indicate the same genders. And so looking at them by instinct now, because I've been in a bunch of places with a bunch of different gender expressions, I start trying to sort them into the categories of those genders. but. Really, that doesn't matter here, because here, none of that is relevant for those considerations. There really is only one gender for all people here. And she is explicitly more comfortable with that, right? Now, she does say that she's not a person, but I think it's pretty accurate to say that she would consider herself of a type with them and would be in any case more comfortable with the idea that all people should be treated in a genderless way. And I think, you know, plausibly she did, she doesn't like the way she's been treated, right? She's obviously has a lot of grievances with it. So I think it's fair to say she would probably want she to be used rather than it.
1: Yeah, OK, I'll stick with the she. I, I'm less confident of the correctness of application of that, but I guess it's there are enough conventions under which it's appropriate that I'll stick with it.
0: I mean, I, I can see the argument the other way, right? Because she does still talk about how she considers herself different from a person or like not a citizen of the Rajai and things like that though the stuff about how she isn't a person was more in the past chapters than the present chapters and when she's used it in the present chapters i haven't really been sure if she's using it ironically like she's you know even if it's in her internal monologue saying stuff like i'm not a person so this shouldn't apply to me knowing that like that's how other people think about it but just kind of being aware that that's the attitude rather than agreeing with the attitude.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, obviously, the, there wouldn't even be a question if this story were not being told in the first person.
0: And also not if she wasn't, in the present, constantly lying to a lot of people, right? Like, if she was honest about the fact she was an ancillary, and the, then we could get some information about how she wants to be referred to and thought of based on how people who she who like her refer to and think of her right but she's pretending she's a human to some degree you know like a a human in the sense of like a a a regular ragi citizen
1: Even, even human is blurry what with the whole ancillary thing and then the subsequent severing from the network of ancillaries
0: well, we've explicitly heard that their understanding of humanity would say that people with sufficient cybernetic enhancements are no longer human, right? And she has that even if she weren't an ancillary.
1: Oh, which speaking of which, I need to read more about this, but I came across in current events the possibly the most the coolest thing I've heard in
0: 2023.
1: Oh yeah. It's it's called the Enhanced Games. And it's transhumanist Olympics, which, with, at a minimum, no drug testing.
0: Not bad. That that sounds potentially interesting, though. Also, like, it might run into people really badly hurting themselves. I mean,
1: yes, but the meta will evolve. The, the meta will work with that. The, the, the issue isn't... The issue with steroids isn't, like, the taking of steroids in the first place. Like, there are health issues around that. But the ban is the reason that we haven't had any... That there's no research spent on making them safer. The issue is steroid enhanced athletes competing pretending to be not steroid enhanced and competing hmm. alongside non steroid enhanced athletes. So if the Olympics had a juice division and a and a straight division nobody would there would be no reason for anybody to care.
0: Hmm. I do think there was a joke I heard I think I'm stealing this from Carl Smallwood who is a writer. He said no, I I think there should be at least some competitions where we can do whatever we want to try and make th- the people in them do the competition as good as possible. I want to see someone walk up to a foot race with robot legs and the heart of a cheetah, say fear China, and then disintegrate <laughs> into the finish line.
1: So I'm not sure how I feel about fully robotic legs. But Oscar Pistorius had some impressive prosthetics that would probably outperform OG legs if you worked on them a bit with sort of leaf spring feet cut into curves. Hmm. And we, well, we don't say nice things about him anymore because he killed somebody, right? Hmm. Hang on.
0: I have no idea about this guy, but I suppose not. I
1: could have sworn I'd mentioned the name at least once before yeah okay in 2013 he shot and killed his girlfriend so i don't have nice things to say about him obviously but he was athletically impressive and having not had feet for his entire life because they were amputated when he was less than a year old he performed quite impressively and i have definitely seen some discussion out in the ether on the point at which prosthetics should be disallowed in regular competition because they would outperform baseline humanity. It's
0: definitely a complicated question because it it is also not just a question of like, is it better, but also like, where do we want to start dividing lines about what is fair and what isn't? Because like, you know, two different people might just have different genetics that make one of them a lot more predisposed towards being a good swimmer, for example, than someone, even if they put in the same amount of effort or even if one puts in more effort than the other. So it's it's a difficult question that I don't think has a clear answer. And I think it's going to depend on what you think the point of a given sports competition is. But, you know, I think what is the maximum that we can do, both using science and technology to augment our ability to do a thing and using training and like, that kind of effort to augment our ability to do a thing. I think that's a perfectly fine kind of competition to have. And, you know, Godspeed to him.
1: <laughs> yes. Like the, I, it is interesting to know via the Olympics what the limits of unaugmented humanity are. It would also be very interesting to know what the limits of augmented humanity are.
0: So, yes, Ask has a conversation with Skyat. Skyat tries to get Ask to basically Leave Cyverdan alone because she thinks Cyverdan's case is going to be made worse by being involved with an alien. Alien here in the sense of like foreigner. Uh, and Esk, meanwhile, is just trying to suppress the fact that she is incredibly angry, just like looking at Skyad because she kind of has a bit of a complex about everyone who she ever met having betrayed or failed lieutenant on but especially skyat because skyat was on friend her lover her confidant and yet when the time came to it she wasn't able to help her but also it seems very sort of theoretical she, she says like all the people who were on the justice of toran failed lieutenant on by not doing something to stop what happened but also skyat would have failed her and she seems to assume this based on things that skyat said or like ways that skyat upset on through callous remarks but also to a certain degree i think it's also just This is a reminder of the most painful and traumatic thing that happened in my past. And so it's not going to be an easy conversation with this person, especially as I try to present myself in a totally false way.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Other thing that stuck out to me in 18, holy shit, these apartments are tiny
0: yeah they what was it like five hundred square meters or something was
1: oh no that that would be enormous. It's described as being a ridiculously luxurious five meters square that is twenty five square meters
0: oh yeah five <laughs> that is no that's very weird I, I guess that is you're
1: about that is like half the size of the smallest apartment that I've ever lived in that I was paying like four hundred a month for in china
0: and you're supposed to and Also, there's apparently a private bathroom there, which is
1: extremely unusual, but not totally unreasonable to just have a couple of those floating to provide for honored foreign guests.
0: I guess the implication here has to be that you are expected to do all of your living in public space. So this is literally just the room that has your bed in it. And for most people, right? or for most people, they probably don't even have a bedroom. They sleep in a bunk somewhere. Which is, like, you know, maybe not in and of itself a bad thing. It's a different thing. But, like, you know, they're from a, like, civilizational top-down design perspective, they're probably trying to encourage a certain degree of community that you might not have otherwise. They don't want you to feel separate and individual I mean, and atomized. They want you to feel...
1: I mean, I think it's just to impress on you that you have absolutely no privacy, that nothing is hidden from the Lord of the Raj.
0: Yeah, but, like, it almost seems like pointlessly hitting the nail on the head because it's like you already are literally being watched all of the time by cameras if you're on a station and you know that's the case and even if you do have a private room it has cameras too and they never turn off so it's like sure, I guess you're doing an architecture whose form fits its function thing here, but you could have private rooms if you wanted and it would have the same actual effect. Mm. Um, It it does also throw into a different context something that I found weird in a previous chapter. We saw uh, Lieutenant on bathing and we saw that the way they bathe is by having Ancillary's you know pour water over them which is like okay sure that's a way you can do it but it seemed like an odd custom but i guess it's probably just like a public bathhouse thing right because they did say that uh, she speculated that she that lieutenant on probably took a bath late so that she could have the bath area to herself so presumably in general there are only public restrooms and public bathhouses
1: Yes, the private bathroom is specifically discussed as an extremely uncommon luxury. Yeah. Like, obviously, Anna Ander gets one, and presumably senior houses are going to have one for their members. But I guess this being a space station that they're on, it makes a lot more sense. But
0: even the idea of having a public bathhouse in a space station is like very opulent right because it's like well it is a space station so you're presumably going to have to think about what all that moisture is doing and if it gets anywhere else it can cause problems
1: i mean kind of but well that seems to be solved i'm just saying the tiny the tiny private residences to the such as they exist make more sense on a space station than they would on a planet
0: sure yes i i agree Lieutenant On had a house in the lower city and she had another place she was supposed to be in the upper city. So, you know, maybe that's also part of it is she felt more comfortable down there where she literally just had more space. But I do think it was mostly a social thing that she felt like the Orsians wouldn't be given a fair shake unless she was there to make sure it happened.
1: Yes. And I guess also in a military context, you'd have the small things anyway. On having her own house is just, I mean, that's an authority thing, but presumably most Rajai soldiers are in a barracks so or something very much like it.
0: Yeah. I see your notes about chapter set 18 said they left you feeling more confused about Skyat.
1: Yeah. It's just the, the, just the very intense coincidence, which is thankfully lampshaded. So it's not cursed anymore, but it's still, I have absolutely no idea why beyond symbolism Skyat ended up here.
0: Um, I mean, it, could be that we're supposed to literally read this as divine intervention, right? And the fact that she is being the benefited by divine intervention could be like kind of the cosmology of the story's universe confirming the idea that actually her faith is going to be rewarded and actually she is just as valid a person to worship the faith as any of the Ragi are.
1: Maybe. I'm very interested to see where that goes. What with the ambiguity about Esk's personhood being a thematic focus?
0: Yeah. So in chapter 19, a mysterious captain makes an offer to meet Esk sort of indirectly through one of his subordinates. And Esk finds that weird and assumes that actually the captain just wanted to meet Cyverdan, but thought that this would be a better way to do it because this would mean Cyverdan can get the offer from someone she knows and the person who gets the rude offer can be the comparatively unimportant foreigner of yes
1: yeah her her cover as Breck from the garantate is intact Strigan is it's the only...
0: garantate i assure you it's garantate
1: from the garantate well never mind i have no idea what to do with that word
0: yeah look that's from the audiobook it's garantate
1: but i know i i i'm not arguing with you i'm reading this in text form and not the audiobook, but that is definitely not how I would have pronounced that word.
0: All right, fair enough. I think I'm constantly thinking throughout this book that Esk makes so many assumptions about people and their intentions and their thoughts, and she must sometimes be getting these wrong. She almost never gets them wrong, so this is a bad guess to keep making. She's almost always judging people correctly, but I do have to wonder, yet again, is she right about the captain's intentions? Does the captain want to meet Cyberdan? Or is this ju- just that Esk has, like, you know, this idea in the back of her head that people are going to see Cyberdan as more important than her because she has these experiences of being an ancillary where Cyverdan was an officer? Because, like... If you actually think about their relative social positions, Cyberdan is maybe interesting, but isn't a high class person anymore because Cyberdan's house was completely destroyed and there's no, like, they have no power anymore. So it seems much more likely that an enterprising captain would want to meet an incredibly rich, incredibly honored alien who's visiting as a tourist. So my guess would be the captain really does just want to meet her and thinks it's going to be socially beneficial to meet her. Or maybe, you know, maybe the captain thought she was really attractive. You know, that could also be a thing. That could be a reason people invite other people to go places.
1: Yeah, I I liked that conversation. It does a... I I think it did a pretty good job of both diegetically uh, enforcing asks cover further and trying Mm. to... It's about the least reproving way that you could call attention to the bizarrety and sometimes cruelty of Raj custom mm-hmm. in this context. But I, I did particularly like, or I, I guess we'll, we'll get to the, uh, the conversation with the station eventually, so go ahead.
0: Okay, the other two big things are, you know, the station thing and uh, Cyberdan coming back and admitting that she cannot deal with the shame and, discover and discomfort of living in poverty on the Rajai Charity. And she asks to be Esk's servant again, because previously she had kind of listened to what Skyat said and had let her pride take over and had said, like, I don't need anything from Esk. I don't need anything from anybody. I, you know, I do things like gloves and food and stuff from the Ragi. But she had never lived in that way before, and she did not last that way for very long. Because while the food was, you know, unappealing and unappetizing, it was also just humiliating for her to be, like, given the bare minimum in that way and not have any autonomy over her life. And she lasts a very short amount of time before coming back to Esk.
1: Yes, and that precipitates the invitation to meet with Captain Vell.
0: And yes, as you said, the other thing is thinking about how the station's AI is... If anyone's going to discover her, it's going to be the station's AI because the station's AI is always watching and it's forming a model of her intentions and, like, inner state based on everything she does and every reaction she has to every stimuli she observes. So she actively tries to make some... Make some impressions on it that will lead to it having misapprehensions about why she reacts to certain things in the way she does. And also just worries a lot that it might be catching on quicker than anyone else to the fact that she's lying about the reasons that she's here.
1: Yeah, but it's clearly not that quick on the uptake because uh, Esk's thorough disabling of her ancillary implants is sufficient to, well, because Esk hasn't been arrested yet. And all of the cues that could possibly be provided to the station have been disabled to the extent that they're possible to disable. That that conversation, as I mentioned now, and well, mm-hmm. so what what the station can see well enough is that Esk's leg injury is st- still problematic and uh, offers Ratchai medical assistance. And Esk's excuse for declining this is surprisingly good.
0: Yes, that... She's heard about Ratchai Medical Care and she would rather suffer some leg pain than uh, she would rather suffer some leg pain and still be the same person afterwards.
1: Yes. And then the station says, well, first of all, that's not what either of the things you're worried about would do to you. But in any case, you're not eligible for them. And yeah, that brings us to the the quote that stuck with me. It's a pretty good definition of power. In fact, we have a saying where I I come from. Power requires neither forgiveness or permission nor forgiveness. Mm. Submitting herself to Ragi custody.
0: Remind me, in context, what is what are they saying that about? Like, what is the power here?
1: Uh, The idea is, yes, the the Ragi are locally powerful. And the garantate are emphatic that they don't assist their citizens in any way when traveling. That is mentioned diegetically. So, to uh, yeah, they they
0: they take no opinion on whether their citizens have a legal right to be in any given
1: place. Breck is being cautious and not submitting herself further to to the direct custodial power of the ratchai. than can be avoided.
0: Yeah, and, and the two things in question there are either re-education or the aptitude test which is interesting because the the re-education it's obvious how you would think oh yeah that you would be changed right you you would be psychologically changed by what they would do to you but it's interesting that the station thinks in terms of things that would happen while i'm taking your medical care that would change who i am it's interesting the station thinks of the aptitude test because it kind of what is it thinking there what is the implication is it that seeing your aptitude be taken would mean that you have to go do the thing now or that like you would get assigned a job and not be able to leave yes
1: or just that to get dissected and they would figure out if the guarant if the people of the garantate are physiologically different in any way from ragi there is a whole bunch of things that could happen Maybe. It
0: it, it just makes me wonder what exactly happens during the aptitude tests, because they trust them a lot to to a certain degree. You know, there's sort of a a morally significant belief that whatever your result on the aptitude test is really is your aptitude and you deserve exactly what you get, good or bad. But I do wonder, like, what are they actually doing during the aptitude test? Does it involve someone doing a a psychic probe on you and Or some other
1: even more unsavory sort of probe. Indeed. So yeah, that's in any case, it is del- it is remarkably well delivered as an excuse for that. And I approve strongly. See, did did we already discuss Cyberden getting into the fight?
0: No, I don't think we did discuss that.
1: Oh yeah, because it happens right after the right at the it's what ends the station conversation. So yes, next, Cyberden has been arrested and Breck has mm-hmm. to intervene.
0: Yeah. And she does. Cyberden what is the actual, like, reason that the fight happened? What's the specific thing?
1: The lodging assigned to Cyverden was double booked.
0: Right, yes.
1: And Cyverden's uh, ragi is a thousand years out of date, and they couldn't communicate.
0: Right, and Esk thinks about how, like, I was around for all that time, and language changes are relatively slow, so I didn't. I, I hadn't really thought about how differently... Cyverdan speaks than how modern people speak. But apparently it's enough that for Cyverdan it's just totally unintelligible.
1: I mean, there are a few dialects of English less separated from mine than that, that I can barely understand. Yeah. Certain like really thick accents in part of the British Isles, Mm -hmm. for, for example, and at least one Caribbean dialect of English.
0: But yes, Esk helpfully comes in and rescues the situation.
1: Yes. And, well, the reason for the fight is, yes, surprisingly acceptable, and it doesn't end up derailing things much, but Cyberden now has a mark on her permanent record.
0: Bum, bum, bum.
1: Right, because they're in a, they're in a civilization where permanent records are a thing that actually exist.
0: Totalitarian theocracy.
1: Also, Sushi exists in this setting. Sushi! <laughs> Just a cool thing. We have no idea if Earth exists, or we know Earth exists in this setting, but we have no idea how far removed from it we are in time or space.
0: Do they use the word sushi or do they just talk about like, you know, it's uncooked fish?
1: They mentioned that it's wrapped in a layer of algae.
0: Recognizably the same thing. Yeah. Well, that is about all I had to say about these these chapters. They gave me a lot of insights as to what I think is going on with the thematics of the book once again. And I am looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the last couple parts.
1: Yes, I'm very interested in that. I'm surprised at how little the Cyberden fight turns out to matter. I'm interested to see what happens with Captain Vell, what the significance of this meeting is. And um, last chance to make book on whether an Mm Anander gets killed in the next three chapters, four chapters. I think
0: definitely at least one Anander is going to get killed.
1: And on whether one Esk survives it.
0: I also think Esk is going to get killed. Yeah, I think Esk is also going to get killed. I think... I think she's going to achieve at least some of her political objectives. I think Cyverdan's not going to come out of it all right. Yeah, it just seems like basically everybody's going to die because there's been a lot of talk about how and when you should throw your life away and what kind of sacrifice is a good sacrifice. So at least some people have got to actually die for something meaningful. Obviously, I hope that Cyberdan and Esk make it out alive. And, you know, maybe there can be a bloodless coup on and at, at a galactic scale. Doesn't seem very fucking likely, but we can hope. All right, then. I've been Johnny.
1: And I've been GSV Amusement Park.
0: Enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think.